Well, beloved, take your Bibles and turn them open to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Now, I'm going to read from verse 13 down through the end of the chapter. But before I read from God's Word, let's ask His blessing upon us. Now, gracious Father, we do come and we ask for enlightenment. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us hearts prepared to receive, Lord, the truth of your word. Give us the desire to humble ourselves under its teaching, Lord, that we would conform to it, that we would be washed by it, that we would be encouraged from listening to it, and we would be strengthened, O Lord, have our hope increased, Lord, that what we are doing and, and what we have committed to, Lord, is glorifying to your name and is yielding for ourselves great happiness and joy. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beloved, hear the word of the living God. And John writes, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. And I do not say that he should make request for this. All righteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one is born of God who sins, but he who has been born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In this, in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. Now, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. In keeping with my word, I was asked by several of you that I, if I would address the um, topic of assurance, having spent time and we spent several sermons unfolding uh, the parable of the sower, it seemed fitting that after that parable that I would address what is assurance. Can we have assurance of salvation? And if we have our assurance lacking, what do we need to do to increase it? What do we need to do to revive our assurance? Now, this is a very important question. It's a question that believers have wrestled with, well, throughout history. Even in our confession of faith, the Westminster Divines devoted a whole chapter to the assurance of salvation. Now, they felt the need to do that because even in their day, there was a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of superstitious ideas concerning assurance, and they wanted to address it scripturally so that God's people could be strengthened with the truth 
and have the strength needed and necessary to carry on with their Christian faith. Now, even today, assurance is all over the place. The idea of assurance is all over the place. One of the reasons the divines wrote on uh, a chapter on assurance was the misunderstanding that the Catholic Church was spreading about assurance because they did not believe, the, the Catholic Church did not believe you could have assurance. They just had a strong probability. Maybe, possibly, could be, and in order to gain, now you can imagine living under that kind of idea. We really don't know. All we can do is do the best we can. And, and you know, when we close our eyes and take our last breath and then we, we just leave this world hoping so. I don't want to leave this world this way and I know you don't either. That's not the way to leave this world. Especially when the Bible says we can know these things. And we can know we have eternal life. We can know for a fact that we possess the grace of salvation. That we possess Christ and he possesses us. And that's the reason the church spent a lot of effort with indulgences and with confession and giving those special anointments from the priest. That is, you could go pay the church money and the priest would anoint you and bless you and give you that assurance. And the Westminster theologians rejected that idea and they said, well, that, that's, that's superstitious. We reject that idea because assurance of salvation and grace cannot come from man. It can only come from God. It can only come from the Holy Spirit bearing witness to our own souls that we are the children of God. It's not something that we can conjure up ourselves or someone else conjure up for us. How many times, and I wonder, and I'm not asking for an uh, uh, outburst of answers, but I want you to answer it in your hearts. Have you ever gone to a close friend and you confess to this close friend, I'm struggling. I, I've fallen into sin and now I really don't even know that I'm a Christian. And the friend look at you and say, well, if you're not a Christian, I'm certainly not a Christian. You're the best Christian I know. You should have all the assurance that you are a Christian. Now, encouraging words, right? We've probably heard those things. I mean, we've probably, and then our, even our best friend began to confess their weaknesses. And, and then there was this just session of, of just laying out before the two of you these weaknesses. But the problem is, beloved, that's not assurance. As much as we love each other and as much as we want to help each other, 
The last thing we should ever want to do is to give our brothers and our sisters a false assurance. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 that we should all be willing to examine ourselves to see whether or not we be in the faith. And even there are Christians today that says, no, you should never, ever, 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 ever doubt your salvation. Once you've said the sinner's prayer, once you've confessed Jesus Christ, you, you should never, ever doubt it again. But that is just not biblical. In fact, beloved, every time we come to Scripture, are we not being examined by the Word of God? Are we not having our hearts laid open before the Lord of glory and we are under his scrutiny and his judgment? He's discerning us. He's discerning our intentions and our motivations and he's reading our very hearts, who we are. Because we are very good about presenting ourselves the way we want to be seen. And God is able to look beyond that. God is able to look right into our hearts and he sees who we are. Now, that should scare all of us. Because even Jeremiah the prophet said that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who could know it? When you look at passages like the parable of the sower and you come to realize that out of all of the people that are hearing the word of God, there is only one that is truly, uh, who is truly savingly received that word and, and, and knows the Lord. There's only one out of the four that Jesus commends and that's the one that bears fruit and more fruit and lots of fruit. All of the rest are, well, they're counterfeits. They're not genuine. Though the two of them may have the appearance of, of being genuine for a, a period of time, we don't know how long, and for everyone it's different. Sometimes people make a profession in Christ and fall away really quickly. It's just a short period of time that they realize that they cannot walk with Christ and walk with their old buddies. That they can't walk and continue in these old lifestyles and, 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 and yet come to church and hear con, you know, the word of God preach and expounded and fall under this conviction. And it's like, you know what? I don't want this. I, I'm just not going to do this. And they fall away. Some takes years, years and years before ever really realizing there's really nothing for me here. And they fall away. And beloved assurance of salvation is a benefit and a blessing to all of God's people. And when you think about the the idea of being assured of grace. I mean, it certainly, you know, piques our interest. It certainly grabs our attention. And 
we, we often, we want to go from one, one side of the spectrum to the other. Uh, yes, I have it. No, I don't. There's hardly any middle ground. And yet the scriptures speak to not only the infallible knowing we have Christ, that is we can know infallibly we have him without reservation, but that also Christians are often assailed and tempted and tried and put under some severe tests in order to, to strengthen and to bring out the best in us, but also to, to flush out the worst that needs to be addressed. Oftentimes when we forego making those choices and decisions that we know we should make for righteousness sake, the Lord is patient, but often what the Lord will do is after a season and we have not addressed that particular area in our life, what does the Lord do? He brings it to trial. And when he brings it to trial, we sit back in amazement at God's hand and love for us. And we see his love for us when we say, Lord, I've, I, I have failed to address this choice, this sin. I have failed to address th this character defect. And yet here I am before you and you are highlighting it. And now you are forcing me by the grace of God to deal with it or, or admit I'm not a child of God. And those are the tests. It, it, it's only a pass or fail thing. Okay. I like what the Puritan Thomas Watson said about assurance. And um, because in addressing assurance with God's people, uh, he, he asked the question, he says, you know, he says this, does this infallible assurance belong to every believer? And all who have made a profession of faith, does this assurance belong to them? And he answers the question, I think, such wisdom. He says this, he says, well, yes, yes. Put that in your notes. They have the title to it. But not all Christians fully enjoy the benefits of it. Yes, it's yours. But what's lacking? The benefits, the flowing, that, that, that benefit of assurance that flows out of that justification and that sanctification. Have you taken full ownership of it? Is there still this, what's lacking? Now, I can't answer that question for you. I can answer it for myself. You have to answer that question, all of you. You have to say, well, I have the title to this, but have I, have, I, have I fully enjoyed the benefit of it? And that's why this is important, and it's why the divines wrote a whole chapter on it in order to address the superstition of their day, but also to encourage the people of God, this is what you have in Christ. Take it and own it. Take possession fully of it. 
Now listen to me. There are basically three kinds of people that I'm addressing in this sermon. There are those that have the assurance of salvation that ought not have it. (laughs) I mean, there are those who what the scriptures would call hypocrites. They don't own Christ. They do not have possession of that saving grace. And there's no reason at all to believe their testimony. Now, this is referenced in the book of Job, Job chapter 8, where the idea of this hypocrisy is a lot like a spider's web. Now, you think, how how is hypocrisy like a spider's web? When it comes to thinking about one's salvation and standing before God. Well, where does the spider web come from? The spider. The spider produces the web from its own bowels and spins the web out for its house. Hypocrisy is self-generated. This confidence is self-generated. It's not based upon the promises of God. It's not based upon an accurate understanding of the word of God. It's not based upon the means of grace. It's not based upon anything outside of us. This hypocrisy comes from within. That is, we have nothing. We have confidence because we have confidence. And that's an issue in our day, in our day. I doubt very many of you are suffering from Catholicism. But one thing this nation suffers from, and I think the world in general, is just a, an overconfidence in self. I, I mean, I'm going to confess a very shallow form of entertainment that I partake in. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the show where people go and sing and they try to win an audience and they go to Hollywood and they uh, starstruck. I don't know what it's. It's a, it's a, it's a show about who picking the best singers out there. And but that's that's not what is entertaining. What's entertaining is to watch the ones that come and try to sing like 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 me. And you're laughing out too loud. (laughs) And and they go and they audition for this spot, the golden ticket. And they're awful. They're awful. I, I mean, I think I can sing better than some of them, not all of them. And, and I'm sitting there cringing the whole time they are singing. And I'm saying, you know, that, that boy, that girl, their mama should have told them they could not sing. Their friends should have told them the truth. Instead of buying the fantasy that somehow they could sing well enough, what, in the top 2% to go and audition and to win a spot in this show. It's awful. And what is the, the worst part is when they're told they're awful, they argue with them. 
Now, now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Now, that is, it, it is funny. I mean, it's just funny the delusion that people fall into, the fantasy they have about themselves. The same way spiritually. We profess to know Christ when there is absolutely no evidence of knowing Christ in our lives. It's a fantasy. And you can watch movie after movie after movie, even what we would call the decent movies. Listen to any time they start talking about faith, any time. And here's what you're going to hear, faith and faith. Believe it because you want to believe it. If you think it's so, it's so. Well, beloved, that's not faith. That's not genuine trust. You can't have a genuine trust in nothing. You can't have a genuine trust about a salvation that you don't possess and it don't originate with you and it doesn't come from you. You don't own that to give that away. You either have it or you don't. Our nation is under a spiritual delusion of this confidence that they have God and they don't. Now, there are several, in fact, just take your Bibles. You have them open, I'm assuming, to just turn to 1 John chapter 1. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just demonstrate something here. In 1 John chapter 1, now I want you to listen to the words and, and, and let, me set the, let me set the stage. In keeping with, with the, John's thoughts, I mean, John has a pattern of writing that's identifiable. He has a, a way that he likes to present these spiritual truths and he, he pretty much keeps with the system. Well, now I want you to see how John begins to contrast light and darkness, sin and righteousness. Now, keep that in mind because it's important because you're not going to be able to understand the passage unless you understand uh, how these two relate together and are different, okay? Comparing the two, but able to discern the differences. Now, notice in John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, now this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now you see light and darkness as, as basically they are statements that has a lot to do underneath them. In verse six, let, he said, if we say, now notice the, the if if we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, so he's light and he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now let me stop there and sort of unpack it a little bit. Notice what John is saying. He says, if we come and we make the confession of faith that we know God, that's what's happening here. John says, listen, you come and you make this profession of faith. You say, you know God. He said, however, while you make that, in that moment of time, when you make that profession of faith, at the same time, you're walking in sin. And 
Pastor Otis dealt with that a couple of weeks ago, the importance of the verb tenses. To make a profession of faith while walking in sin means you have testified and your testimony is a lie. It's a lie, look at verse six, because you do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What he's saying is, listen, as we profess to know Christ and if we're walking in truth, then as we stumble and we confess our sins, what does Jesus do? He cleanses us from our sins. Why? We're walking with him. We're not practicing sin. We're trying to stay away from sinning. Yet we still Out of weakness of the flesh, we fall. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, think about this. That is a profession of faith, walking in sin, and to say, I have no sin. I'm not sinning. That's the connection. You got to take the context. He's not saying, oh, I'm, I, I, I don't sin and I've never. No, as he makes this profession of faith, as he walks in sins and when he's confronted by it, what does he say? I'm not, a, I don't sin. I'm not doing this. I have a relationship with God. He says, you're deceived. Because if a person truly knows the Lord, They strive to walk in the light. They walk in the light. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Now, to confess sin is to imply that we sin. You don't confess something you don't do. We walk with the, we profess him, we walk in the light, but as we walk in the light, guess what we do from time to time? We sin. And what must we do? What is the act of obedience once we sin? We don't stay in that sin. We don't wallow in that sin. We don't go brag about that sin. We don't go shout that sin to the world. No, we take it to God. We take it to the Lord and we confess that sin. And John says that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's what we want. That's what we did this morning. We came in this morning, we, went to, we, we, we came in to worship the Lord together and we did not want to be guilty of hypocrisy. We did not want to be guilty of bringing ourselves as a dirty vessels to the Lord. And so what did we ask the Lord? Once we acknowledge his majesty, his glory, once we hallowed and honored his name, once we, we paid due reverence to him, what did we do? We confessed our sins together, didn't we? And we acknowledge that, yes, we've stumbled, Lord, but we are your children. We are walking in your ways. And yes, along the way we have fallen and we have misstepped and we've said things and we thought things and we've done things. Lord, we can bring them to you. Our conscience is bearing us as as, as needing to confess it. And we bring it to you, O Lord, because we know that only those who walk with you are those who walk in the light because you are light. Amen? Does everyone see that? And so that's the importance of this assurance. What is this assurance? I've talked about it. I've mentioned it several times. We're kind of halfway into the sermon, but what is this assurance? Well, it's a strong persuasion, strong 
a very strong persuasion of something. That's what assurance is in general. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Now, we've read this in John. We've taken this all through John. For John to even write, these things I write unto you that you may know you have eternal life. What's he? That's a strong persuasion that what? You can take the epistle that I've written, you can make application to it, and you will know you have Christ as your Savior. You'll know these things. They'll belong to you. You will possess this grace of salvation without wavering infallibly. Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> Paul, uh, Romans chapter 8 is a very important chapter to this, but notice how it ends in our Bibles in verse 38. What does Paul say? Paul says, I am convinced, that's the word, I am strongly persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul confesses to this infallible assurance as he writes this epistle to the Romans. He says, I am persuaded, beloved, that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of our God. And you can see the the possession of that assurance for Paul to be able to do what he did. Now, I want you to think about all the things that Paul suffered. He was stoned taken outside the city and stoned with rocks. Uh, He's chased out of town. He was mocked, ridiculed. He was shipwrecked, snake bitten. I I mean, Paul had plenty. He, He suffered hunger. All his friends left him at certain points in time, that important points, important friends that he was depending upon to help him in certain times of ministry. Guess what? Gone. Paul says, I've been left alone. I've been left hungry. I mean, there were plenty of opportunities for Paul to doubt the love of God. And yet, Paul, listen, it's not that Paul was Superman. But Paul, like like we need to do, bring ourselves under the dominion of the word of God, under the teaching of the word of God and constantly be reminding ourselves who loves us and who do we love? Who do we serve? In fact, Thomas Watson says that the assurance we're talking about here is that we are the children of God and the love of God is in us. Now, now I'm not talking about your love for God. That's subjective, isn't it? My love for God may be strong on Sunday, may not be so strong on Friday. What Thomas Watson is talking about when he unfolds the scriptures there in Romans, what he's saying is, no, no, that the love of God is in you, that God loves you. That God has made you his son and his daughter. 
that he has brought you out of the world into his family and made you his possession. And now by submitting to the word of God, by the spirit of God working in you, now you bear out the testimony that you are the true child of God. Stay in Romans and look back. Um, look at the earlier part of the chapter. <clears throat> you find that particular statement. Look at verse, uh, let's see, let's just look at verse 16. Or back up to 14. And Paul, this is what Paul writes. He says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the spirit himself with our spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, Robert Shaw goes into great explanation on this statement in his commentary on the Westminster Confession chapter on assurance. And he clears up a lot of mysticism and a lot of confusion. And I think that confusion probably might exist here this morning, or at least we can strengthen the right position as well. So many Christians come to that verse, verse 16, and they say, you know what? I know I'm a Christian. God spoke to me. And when you read a lot of the older commentaries, they'll address that aspect. They'll address, no, this assurance does not come audibly. Now, that doesn't mean it's a voice like mine that all can hear, but audibly to you. He said, that, that, that's not the way it works. See, that's what the Catholic Church taught, that somehow if you were going to have this assurance of salvation, you were going to have to have it either through the church or God was supernaturally going to give it to you. And they rejected both of those understandings. And this is how they understand the passage. And this is the one that makes sense. And this is the one that is in keeping with the whole counsel of God's word. And that is this. How does the spirit of God testify to your own spirit? Well, the spirit of God takes the word of God that he wrote and begins to make application to that word in your heart. And these principles, these commandments, these graces testify to you. Let me give you an example. You can be sitting here this morning and not enjoy any of the worship, yet you sit here with a smile on your face because you think you ought to enjoy it. But in your heart of hearts, you don't. The Spirit of God brings to bear the commandments and you say, I break that one. I, 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 that's a one I have a problem with. All right, let's just use John as an example. If you hate your brother. Well, Jesus says, if you speak evil of your brother, you're guilty of hate. So let's just say that all of us here this morning struggle with malice. We struggle with 
bitterness. We struggle with envy. We struggle with hatred. When the Spirit of God brings those texts to us, whether we read it or whether it's preached, the Spirit begins to testify to us through the Word of God that we are guilty and that we must amend, we must confess it, and that we must own love for our neighbor. We must strive. And then we begin to pray and ask God for strength. And we begin to say, Lord, I'm guilty of hating my brother. I spoke evil of him. I ruined his reputation. I spoke evil of her. I had an opportunity to correct a matter and I let them think the wrong things about my sister, about my brother. Lord, I'm guilty of hating my neighbor. Lord, forgive me, cleanse me, and let me begin to amend my ways with righteous behavior. Let me correct it. That's the spirit of God testifying that what? I am a child of God because the father, what did John, what did John write? He is light in him is no darkness at all. How can we say we know him if we walk in sin? Even though we're willing to do those things that we don't want to do, it's embarrassing. But we do them because we are the children of God. And we possess Christ. And we can be cleansed. And we can be made whole. Remember what John, look at the encouragement that John gave to that section. He said, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us of our sins. Don't all of us want that? Would we rather play the hypocrite game Or would we rather be cleansed by Jesus Christ? That doesn't seem to be a hard question to answer, does it? You see, the Holy Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit is never, I guess, let me me put it, let me turn it around and, and present it this way. The Holy Spirit, beloved, is never going to come and affirm to you salvation you don't have. Ever. The Holy Spirit can't lie. The Holy Spirit's God. God cannot lie. Remember what John said. He's light. In him is no darkness at all. The Holy Spirit is never going to convince you you have Christ when you don't. So when the Holy Spirit comes to you to testify that you are the child of God, it's not a matter of sin because if we have sin, what are God's children willing to do? Confess it. And to walk beyond it and to, to kill it with the, the, the acts of righteousness, with the willingness and to, to humble ourselves and to walk before our God in humility. You see, beloved, this is why you can't just conjure up for yourselves assurance. You're not going to be able to look at your calendar and go, Sunday, check. I haven't missed a Sunday in five years. I'm really righteous. I think I'm a child of God. That's not the way you judge that. We have to go to the inside of the man. Brothers and sisters, listen, hypocrisy is as old as the world. 
okay? When you're dealing with counterfeit graces, that is those things that look like grace, but they are not grace. Oftentimes, people that are not believers, they're not true believers, will get outraged over sin. Not because they don't love it, but because it's the outward thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. It's the societal thing to do. There's a lot of virtue singling going on all over the place about the critical race theory and all these other things. People that don't believe it, but they hallow it. Hypocrisy. From the inside out, we exist. We are who we are on the inside. That's the way God sees us. And, and what we have to understand is not the moral outrage that should give us confidence. It's what we love and what we desire for ourselves and for our neighbor, for our children, for our wives, for our husbands, our families, our churches. It's one reason the church is willing to tolerate gross, heinous sins is because ultimately they are okay with it. Now, I may not practice it, but, you know, I would if I could. It's hypocrisy because God knows that. And that's the way God sees that person. And the child of God comes and knows this. And the testimony of the Spirit says what? Confess it. Make heart amends. Confess it as sin. Lord, this is wrong. I shouldn't delight in it. I have delighted in it. Forgive me, O Lord. Change my desire. Lord, let me read your word. Let me memorize it. Let me put it in my heart that I might not sin against you. Lord, let me endeavor to change my, 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 my character, my ways as the Spirit works in me, the word of God, Lord, let me conform to it. And that's why David could say, oh, how I love the law of God because it's what shows me the way. And that's the same confession we should make this morning. Oh, how we love the law of God that it shows us where we are with God. And when we find those commandments that we go, oh, wait a minute. You know, as a pastor, I've often had to deal with this assurance of salvation because when people come for counseling, oftentimes they've been beat up spiritually. Oftentimes they beat themselves up. And it's either a misunderstanding of if I sin at any thought, I can't be a Christian. I mean, I used to be there as a young Christian. I thought, you know, I, I can't. Any bad thought, I was on my constantly having to get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved. Until I understood the whole doctrine of sanctification. Now, beloved, listen to this. And we are almost there in the shorter catechism. <clears throat> but listen to question 36. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are, look, assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, an increase of grace, perseverance therein to the end. Notice the first one, assurance of the love of God, that he loves you. 
These things flow out of that work of the Spirit in us. They're benefits. And yes, we have a title to it. But my question for you this morning, are you taking full possession of it? If you are, you will be as bold as a lion for Christ. You'll be like the apostles that understood this truth and look how they impacted the world. Now they were called to be apostles and to go spread that word in a very ministerial specific way. But, but where are you where the Lord has you? Where's your boldness? Where's your confidence? This assurance, this deep persuasion that you possess the love of God, that you possess Christ as your Savior. There are a couple of things you need to look for. Number one, this will be the, the end of the sermon this morning, but there are a couple of things you need to look for, and then we'll look at some of these benefits. But the first thing you ought to look for when you are examining yourself to see if you possess this salvation is humiliation. Pride is a terrible sin. It gets the best of us, and it's torn down so many pastors. It's torn down so many churches. Listen, pride kicks Satan out of heaven, right? It's the original sin. You know, pride is that, that idea, right, that we, we possess something that's really not true about us. We believe something that's really not true about us, that we're the best, we, we're the most knowledgeable, we're, we're the most consistent, right? We're the most righteous. And yet, when the Spirit comes into your life, one of the very first virtues it's going to teach you is humility, that you are not all that you think you are before God. Because one of the first things the Spirit does in, in testifying to us with the Word of God is to show us all our deficiencies. You know, um, you ever, you know, you've seen those uh, info commercials of the blue light? You know, you can, you, the germs in the kitchen? You know, he's like, hey, you can clean your kitchen with this product, but you turn on the blue light and you see all of these spots everywhere. You're like, oh man, they're still there. All this crud that you can't see with the human eye. Well, that's the word of God and the Holy Spirit's like the blue light in our soul. We look in the mirror and we think we're great. We come to church, we look around, we say, well, I'm paying attention. They're not paying attention. I'm amening. There's not nobody else amening. That should have been an amening point. I'm singing louder than this person singing. And the Holy Spirit brings the scriptures to bear on your heart and then you begin to see all the holes in it. And the Christian can only humble himself under that and acknowledge that God is true and all of us are liars because we think things that are not true and we say things that are not true. The other thing to look for is the way assurance comes into our life when the Holy Spirit comes and brings the word of God into our life is that assurance wants to protect righteousness. 
It didn't want to damage righteousness. They don't want to put ourselves in a harmful situation. We want to, if we're going to have the benefits and the joys of assurance, then we need to protect it. It's fragile. It's fragile. You go out and you do something you ought not do. How often when you look in the rearview mirror driving down the road, you start weeping because you said, Lord, I thought I was past this. And a month ago, I was crying out to you asking for forgiveness. And now here I am again. It's fragile. And the spirit of God works the word of God in us and he wants to protect us from that. Why experience that when we can say, no, I'm not going over there. No, I'm not participating in that. No, I'm not hanging out with you. Uh, No, we're not doing this. I'm not talking about these things. The word of God, beloved, is the key. John says, I write these things so that you may know. The word of God is the key to your assurance. Are you reading it? Are you meditating on it? Are you listening to it being read? Are you listening to sermons of preaching the word, memorizing it? That is, if my confidence lies upon the Holy Spirit bringing to bear the revelation of of God to my heart and soul, then I should know it. I should learn it. I should devour it. I should eat it so that I can be strengthened in order to make those decisions that I need to make. And most of these decisions are what? Discerning one thing from another. This is good. This is bad. This is not good for me. Just Again, brothers and sisters, remember what I said a few weeks ago when I talked about fruitfulness. Where does this fruit, what does this fruit flow from? Being a new creation in Christ. Why is assurance and your possession of it fully matter? Several things. Number one, because assurance makes faith sweet. Can you imagine professing to know Jesus Christ and never really knowing you know him? Never having the sweetness of fellowship, never having the the confidence of walking with him, never being able to read the scriptures and literally read about him and know him and, and love him and be drawn to him. That's what Paul says this proof text is Philippians, Philippians 3, 8. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish or trash so that I may gain Christ. Now, what's Paul? How could Paul make that statement if he doesn't know Jesus? How can Paul count and relate to the value of Jesus Christ if he doesn't know him? But because Paul knows Christ and he sees his incredible value, he is able to compare the value that he knows about Christ to everything else and say, compared to Christ, this is nothing. Nothing. Because he knows Christ. Christ. 
Assurance makes our faith, beloved, sweet. It makes it worthwhile. Assurance makes life sweet. You think about guilty people. You know guilty people? Bitter people? Angry people? You know what the Bible says about an angry person? Stay away from them. Stay away from them. Because they will negatively impact your life. Assurance of salvation makes your life sweeter. Because as you walk through this life and all the things you face, all the troubles you face, all the trials that you will experience, beloved, you c- I know whom I have believed in. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've entrusted to him for that great day. He's going to hold on to me. I'm certainly not strong enough to walk through this. Now, that was a day you used to think you were strong enough, and I used to think I was strong enough, but the Holy Spirit taught us differently. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 talks about the joy of the Lord is our strength. I've already mentioned how assurance, the, the prize, the possession of assurance, should keep us from following, going after, chasing after sin. And that's what Satan wants to do. Satan wants to draw you out, right? He wants to pull you in. He wants to tempt you. He wants to convince. What does Satan convince? When we are tempted, what is one of the main lies of Satan that we fall for too often? And that is, you really would enjoy this if you practiced it. You're thinking about it. You want to do it. And you know what? Let go. Go ahead. And what does Satan love to preach? Liberty. And he's preaching the lie of liberty when it's basically slavery. And how many times have you given in to that temptation that you really felt like, and I'm using this subjective term, did you not feel like you had chains on you? He said, I thought I was free from this garbage. And here I am again. And there's a lot of sins that are prominent today that that's exactly the way people talk about them. Bondage. Why? Because that's exactly what they are. They're bondage. And they hold us down. And they suppress our, our freedoms. They suppress our liberty. They suppress our happiness, our joy. All that we've got in Christ to take possession of sin suppresses it. Satan wants us to doubt the promises of God just like he did with Adam. Assurance increases our contentment for Christ, with Christ. I have all that I need. What else should I want? It gives us a peace when we suffer trials and tribulations, James chapter one. It allows us to go, not that we, look, we're not talking about fake. We're not talking about, you know, suffering with a a painted smile on your face. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about knowing that I don't suffer in vain. Christians do not suffer in vain. 
We suffer under the loving hand of God who is holding us up while we suffer and he is ministering to us and he is showing us a depth and a breadth and a width of his love that we would never know otherwise. And it gives us, and this is my last point, It just gives us the assurance that when we close our eyes and take that last breath, that when they open again, we'll be in the presence of the Lord, the sweet presence of the Lord. Now, not, you know, his presence, not always sweet. All right. You can be in the presence of the Lord for judgment. But with that assurance, that possession of Christ, that grace of salvation that we glean from the holy word of God and the scriptures testifying to us that, that that we are the sons and daughters of God, we can leave this world with the confidence of knowing that we're going to wake up in his sweet presence and be in that presence forever. Amen. Because listen to me, beloved, I doubt your life is this hard. And I mean that. There there are people around this world that are Christians, oh my, who, who, who absolutely, you can't imagine the turmoil, the trials, the tribulations, and, and the poverty they live in. You are kings and queens to so many people in the world. But yet they can live in those conditions and we could too if that's where God takes us, knowing in whom we have believed in that he is able to bring us through and to keep that which we've entrusted to him for that great day. Now beloved, assurance is no small matter. It's certainly much deeper than I've presented to you this morning but it's worthy of your study. Go look at the confession. Question 36 in the shorter catechism, question 86 in the larger catechism. There's a whole chapter on it. Take that, study it, meditate on it. Read it, devour it, eat it, and let the the word of God and the promises of God be your strength. Let's pray. Blessed Father and God, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word and to sit under it, and Lord, to reflect upon it and to think about, Lord, the truth of assurance of, of grace and salvation. Now, Father, may we examine ourselves, may we take to hearts just some of these things, and Lord, may we go to the word of God and begin to, to read and to reflect, Lord, let it examine us, Lord, as, as the apostle wrote, that we might make sure that we are in the faith. Lord, we don't want to be without Christ. We don't want to be found without Christ. We don't want to leave this world without Christ. And Lord, even though our assurance may wax and wane, it may be stronger at some seasons of life than others, but nevertheless, we possess it and we have the opportunity today to strengthen it and Lord, to to, um, walk in the understanding, Lord, that we need to begin claiming and taking hold of of all the benefits of assurance. 
Lord, that we might live with that, under that, that biblical spiritual confidence, Lord, that you are our God and we are your children. Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.